I want to begin with a quote from the scholar and commentator F.F. F. Bruce. It's a short quote. The most lavish exercise of spiritual gifts cannot compensate for a lack of love. The most lavish exercise of spiritual gifts cannot compensate for a lack of love. Today we're going through um, Corinthians. We're continuing on in our series and we're going into chapter 13. And I decided to change the assigned text today um, because love in this way that Paul's talking about and writing to the Corinthians about is not an easy subject. It's a difficult subject. It appears easy on the surface, but if you start to dig into it, you see that we're called to a love that's impossible. I mean that. A love that for you and I is impossible. When Jesus says in the Gospels to to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, to be merciful to those who abuse you, what's Jesus saying? He's calling us to something that is beyond what we can do in our human power. It's something that's beyond our nature. It's something, yes, that we admire and we look to, but that we cannot attain. So as we join with St. Paul writing to the Corinthian church today, we're looking at this more excellent way that he talks about. And there's two things that we're going to cover today because that's enough. Number one, what is this love, O Paul and Jesus? Number two, how does love change us? So if you have your Bibles, open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. And if you don't have your Bibles, they're there in the pew. I invite you to open up to those as well. We're going to look at this and take it apart. And this is another one of those passages that is a challenge because we hear it so often. People aspire to it. It's read at weddings. It's read sometimes at funerals. It's read even in secular circumstances. The world desires this love, but the world falsely thinks it can attain it, and it can't. Look at verse 1 and 2, chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What's Paul saying there? He's actually referring to something that would have been very familiar to the Corinthian church. You see, the pagan culture there in Corinth, there were all sorts of gods, and we've talked about this before. And one of the ways that they celebrated their gods was to have these big parades in the street, much like our 4th of July or, or Veterans Day parades today where, you know, past you would go the banners and then would go um, all sorts of religious officials and then would come the musicians and they'd be playing on instruments uh, and, and then would come those hitting gongs and playing cymbals drawing attention to this grand parade. So that's the image that Paul's tying into here when he says I am a clanging cymbal or gong. What's he saying to them? He's saying without love I'm just like those pagans. Without God, I'm just like those pagans. I'm a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. But he takes it up. Verse 2, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, 
but I have not love. I am nothing. I am nothing, he says. What's Paul referring to here? Do you remember in Matthew 17, Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says to them, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to the mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. What Paul's doing here is quoting Jesus himself and saying, yes, but without love, even if you can do that, you're nothing. And the word here literally is nothing in the Greek. Nothing. Not just you're of less use, but no, you're nothing. Useless to the body. Tasks, accomplishments, ministries, without love, have no result in the kingdom of God. Let's continue. Verse 3. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that even the greatest ask uh, acts, rather, of sacrifice, to give away all your possessions, to be that charitable person that goes beyond, to sacrifice even your health and your life itself, all is worthless without God. All is nothing without love. That's setting a pretty high bar, isn't it? Who can attain unto that bar? No one but Jesus Christ, which is Paul's point. You see, in John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. It seems outrageous. How can someone who does those types of things and, and emulates people like Jesus and the great saints who goes through such words and gestures and sacrifices, how can someone like that be nothing? Do you see what Paul's doing? Because we know that ultimately sacrifices, actions, gestures, while often bespeak the heart, don't necessarily tell what's in our hearts. You see, motive is important to God. The heart the disposition of the heart is the most important thing to God. Think back to the Old Testament. Samuel's going around with Jesse, and he's looking for the king. They're, they're eventually going to settle on King David, right? And the Lord speaks to Samuel the prophet and says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord sees the motive. The Lord sees the disposition of the heart. Proverbs 16.2 right, is written, All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. The Lord weighs the motives. You see, the Corinthians are impressed with the outside appearance of those that are spiritual. They're fellow Christians, but really they're like loud cymbals and clanging gongs displaying themselves with their spiritual gifts, but not out of a right heart. 
And so Paul here once again is chastising the Corinthian church for this misuse of their spiritual gifts. St. Paul is echoing our Lord here who in that famous passage in Matthew 6 says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So Paul here is reminding them it's all about the disposition of the heart. But before you think that means think happy thoughts, it's so much more than that. It's something that you and I and our humanists cannot attain to. You see, you've probably heard this passage preached on, maybe someone's gone into the three types of love. Has anyone heard about that? What are the three types of love? What's the first type? Go ahead and shout, shout it out. Familial, yes. Yeah, familial. Uh, philia is the Greek word uh, from which we get familial or friendship love, right? What's another type of love in the Greek? Erotic love, eros, eros, actually. Um, pursuing out of desire, yearning for. It's not always sexual, but it's most often sexual. Filio, that deep friendship. But Paul's talking about a completely different kind of love here. It's the type of love that we see Jesus talk about in the Gospels. He says in John 16, 27, For the Father loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. Even that love is philia, brotherly love. But this word is a different word. It's that word that you've probably heard before, agape or agapeo, right? Christianity literally invents a word to describe this. It's true the word agape or agapeo was in the Greek usage, but it was almost never used. So if you look at classical Greek um, documents going back, and you know, we're looking at Homer, we're looking at Pindar, we're looking at all those, those great Greek writers, the philosophers, the only time the word agape or agapeo is used is to talk about God's preferring somebody or being benevolent. It's this idea of ignoring somebody, right? From the pagan idea that, that if the gods are ignoring you, they're not punishing you, so that's a good thing, okay? Paul takes that term and he breathes completely new life into it. Jesus, before Paul, takes that term and uses it to describe the love of God. It's not just preference, it's not just God leaving you alone so that you can get along with your life. It's God loving you completely, self-giving. We get the English word charity from the Latin caritas, from the Greek agape. So the best English word we have for this is charity. Why charity? Well, we think of that as just dealing with money, but it's this idea of self-giving, this idea of putting yourself on the line for somebody with the purest of pureness of heart. And of course, if we look at ourselves, if we look at our fellow human beings, we know that that doesn't happen. Even 
when we're giving of ourselves, even when we're sacrificing, there's never a 100% pure motive in us. There's always a part of us that thinks about what we're going to get back from it. There's always a part of us that thinks about what we'll look like in, the, in front of others by what we're doing. We don't have this type of pure love in us, quite simply. But this is the word that Jesus uses in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, when he gives us the summary of the law, when he says, love the Lord your God. It's agape. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. It's also the word that's used in John three sixteen, that famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's agape. It's in Matthew, th- Matthew 5 that I read in the gospel today. Love your enemies. Agape. Love your enemies. It's something out of this world. For this reason, Paul writes to the Corinthian church about what this love looks like because it's not like anything they've seen or known. And while this passage is read at weddings, while it's aspired to by the secular world, it's actually cruel to read to a non-Christian because you're setting the person up for failure. Whenever I'm at a, a wedding and it's a secular wedding or you know, just a nominally Christian wedding, I have to kind of laugh to myself when this passage is read because if the bride or the groom are expecting their spouse to act like this, they're going to be disappointed. They're going to be gravely disappointed. This is not something you can will yourself to do. It's something that is a gift just like grace from God. So let's continue on. Let's look at verse 4. What does this agape look like, Paul? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable, irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. What's St. Paul saying here? Love is patient. It's literally a word that means to be long of spirit, to not lose heart, ever. Love is kind, to show oneself to be mild or merciful in personality. Love does not envy. The word here means to burn with zeal, to burn over, to boil over. Love does not boast. It's not arrogant. It's not inflated. Some translates put it puffed up. It's not rude. That word actually means rude, embarrassing, shameful, disgraceful. It does not insist on its own way. It's not selfish or self-serving. It's not irritable. The Greek word there literally means to be short or sharp, to poke at, to provoke, to agitate. It's not resentful. It's not calculating. It keeps no record of wrongs is actually the literal Greek translation. It keeps no, no score 
no recording of evils. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It's not glad for injustice. It's not glad for violation of the law. It rejoices in truth. It bears all things, which also means to protect, defend, and cover. It believes all things. That word is the same word for faith. It's pistuo. It has faith in all things, believes in all things. It hopes all things. It, it, it confidently awaits. It assuredly awaits something. It endures all things. It remains. The word is literally to hold fast to something, to endure all things. That's the type of love that St. Paul's talking about to the Corinthians. And think about it. This is not a prescription for us, first and foremost, but rather it's a description of God to us, first and foremost. God is patient with us. He's kind with us. He doesn't burn with zeal or boil over over us. He's not boastful. He's not arrogant or rude. He's not irritable, resentful of us. He doesn't keep track of our wrongdoings. He's not rejoicing in truth. He bears with us in all things. He believes in us in all things, even when it doesn't make any sense from our vantage point. He hopes in us in all things. He never gives up. He endures all things despite us. Despite the fact that we don't deserve his love, he pours himself out to us. Do you see how that changes this passage? For the Christian, God is this kind of love extended to us. This is God describing himself and Paul giving a new word, expanding on the word that Jesus uses, agape. You see, you and I aspire to this kind of love. But as I said, we cannot attain to it. It's like a jet engine. We sit there on the tarmac without any jets on us. We know that we've been designed to fly. But without the jets, we're going nowhere. It's like a computer without a battery or a power cord. The computer is made to do so many great things, and yet it's useless without the battery or the power cord. It's got a purpose. It's been built for something. But without love, in our case, we're nothing. We're like that computer without a cord or jet without en engines. That's what Paul says. Love is that to us. It's a type of love that's so wonderful that we can't even imagine the extent of it. Agape love is something given to us, a gift. Romans 5.5, 5, St. Paul writes to the Roman church, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has, poured, has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given it to us. It's given to us in baptism. It's poured out. I love that image. You see, putting the fuel in. The Apostle John writes something similar in his epistle. First John 4, 9, he says, We love 
agape because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. This love that's poured into us has to be embraced, however, because it's an act of the will. It's an act of the will to take that and embrace it. Once again, we're brought back to ability and motive. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. How can Paul say then to the Corinthian church, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts? Are the spiritual gifts, by definition, something that they can learn or inculcate in themselves? No, they're a gift. Is love something that they can somehow gin up emotionally or um, somehow manufacture in themselves? No, that love is just like the spiritual gifts. It's something given. But just like the spiritual gifts, we can pursue it or not. We can use our wills to exercise it or not. But ultimately, it comes from God. You see, ultimately, salvation itself is from God. Ultimately, even the ability to know God is from God. If God had not wanted us to love him or even know him, he would not have revealed himself to us. And yet, not only does he reveal himself to us, but he comes to us, shows us, dies on the cross for us, rises from the dead for us, ascends back into heaven for us, men, and our salvation, as the creed says. But how does this love change us? The second point. Well, it completely changes us in the fact that it brings the whole construction alive, the whole creature that we are, that we were built to be, it brings alive. You see, our world and our culture are onto something when they aspire to it. The problem is they don't know the source. The problem is that our world loves the wrong things, the wrong people, has the wrong priorities, has the wrong motives, and aspires to a love that they can't possibly attain. But the love of this world is a frustrating trek to people who aspire to it without Jesus. It turns them into cynics or stoics, people that dismiss love completely as a fable. Well, it's just a nice feeling, but that never comes true, say some. Or it hardens people because they're continually let down because they think they're going to get this kind of love from another person. Or they think they're going to get this kind of love for something in this world. And that makes them hardened. But look what St. Paul says in chapter 13, verse 12. He says, Now we see in the mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. You see, it's in God that we're given this love and are given the ability to love this way. It's hope in God's love for us that eventually becomes clearer than anything in this world. It's knowledge of God that eventually is more important than anything in this world. The word here is gnosko, 
to know completely and be known completely. What in this world is more important than to know God completely and to be known by Him completely? St. Paul wants these Corinthian Christians and you and I to see that this gift of love or charity, this theological virtue, is what theologians call it, changes the Christian immensely. St. Thomas Aquinas, writing in the 13th century, writes this. He says, This law of divine love accomplishes in a person four things that are much to be desired. First, it is the cause of one's spiritual life. For it is evident that by the very nature of the action, what is loved is the one who loves. Therefore, whoever loves God possesses God in himself. What's that mean? It means that God... And God is the font of all love. He's the beginning of all love. He's the head of all love, the origin of it, right? And so even to be spiritual without God, we're nothing. Without his love, we're nothing. But with it, we possess God himself, zero to infinity. Second, says St. Thomas, charity leads to the observance of the divine commandments, for charity is present if one is occupied about great things. But if one is not so occupied, charity is not present. We see a lover do great and difficult things because of the one loved. And that is why the Lord says, whoever loves me will keep my word. So secondly, not only possessing God, in the love gift of God, we're able to obey God. We're able to Keep his commandments. Jesus himself says that. St. Aquinas is, call, is quoting Christ who says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Notice it's not the other way. If you keep my commandments, you will love me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It enables us to be obedient. Third, thirdly, charity is that, thirdly, charity is that it provides protection against adversity. For misfortune cannot harm one who has charity. Because it becomes useful to the person, as the scripture says, all things work for the good of those who love God. So the charitable person who is receiving God's love doesn't just know him, but of course is protected by him to the point that even our misfortunes are turned towards God's glory. Fourthly, charity is truly, this kind of charity truly leads to happiness since eternal blessedness is promised only to those who have charity for all other things are insufficient without charity notice what St. Paul says here verse 13 so now faith, hope, and love abide these three but the greatest of these is love why is love greater than faith and hope? Faith and hope are the other two theological um, virtues, by the way. Faith, hope, and love. Why is charity or love greater than faith or hope? Because eventually the need for faith will disappear. Eventually you will see God face to face. And I will see God face to face. Why is hope lesser? Because eventually, we will see the things we hope for here. We will see wrongs made right. We will see a new heaven, a new earth, a new creation. 
the things that we hope for, that, that we cling to here, will one day be a reality and we'll be in the middle of it to God's glory. But what won't disappear? Love. Charity. It'll never disappear. It's constantly being poured out to us and we are constantly giving it out back to God and to each other. Even in the, at the end of all time, that will be true. Even when we're with God himself, that'll be true. So you see, the Christian is being prepared not just for this world with charity, but for the eternal world with charity. The Christian has the cause for spiritual life He has the ability to be closer to the will of God and obey God. He has the ability to trust that God, to entrust all things, even misfortunes, to that God. He has the ability to be happy because he has set his heart on things not of this world, but things that God will bring to completion. But of course, St. Paul's making the point that knowledge of God is not just enough. And so many Christians think it is. But that love is more important than tongues or prophecy. Why? Because tongues and prophecy are about revealed knowledge. But God himself is love. You see, St. Paul is their spiritual father and ours, wants us as Christians to have formed souls to better comprehend, yes, but to better love God. So what conclusions can you and I take from this passage? Number one, I think that the love of God is something entirely foreign to this world. But we have the answer in Jesus Christ. The completion that we can give to others in Jesus Christ. Number two, our motives need to be subjected to the Holy Spirit. Because even the good things that we do are worthless without God's love acting in the Holy Spirit through us. You see, it's not enough to be good moralists. Number three, we need to look for where the Holy Spirit is changing us. Go back to that description starting in verse four. Where are you growing in your charity? In your love. For you see, while it's a gift, it's a gift that we embrace and put into practice. How's the Lord making you more patient, more long of spirit? Where is He working in you to be kinder, milder, more merciful? Where is the Holy Spirit leading you to not be burning over, constantly agitated? Where is he leading you to not boast, to not be arrogant, to not be puffed up, to not be embarrassed or embarrassing, to not be disgraceful? Where is he leading you to not be selfish or self-serving or to not be short or sharp? How is he changing you so that you're not a calculating person, constantly keeping track of other people because it makes you feel better about yourself? Where is he changing you to not rejoice in wrongdoing, but to rejoice in truth? Where is he calling you to, be, to bear up against all things? To buck up, spiritually speaking. 
to believe all things, to not despair, to hope in all things, knowing that God's in control of it all, to endure all things, to hold fast to the end, no matter what you're going through. Where's the Holy Spirit at work in you? Pray about it. Ask Him. But don't go out of here and say, I'm going to work on that virtue by myself. You'll fail. Go out of here and say, Lord, help me with this. Give me strength with this. Pour your love into me for this so that I might be more fully the man or the woman that you have created me to be. Amen.